Morning, everybody. Morning. See ya. <laughs> um, Pastor Todd's away. He's in San Antonio, Texas, remembering the Alamo. Um, he's down there uh, speaking at a, or has been down there speaking at a men's retreat, and he's preaching in the church this morning, the same church uh, today. So he'll be back next week, and we'll conclude uh, the series on Jude. Um, today, I want to start by telling a little bit of a story. Um, my family and I went on vacation back in January this year uh, to old Quebec City just for a few days. Uh, we went out there, rented an Airbnb, and one morning when we were there, I woke up early. Um, everybody else was still sleeping, and so I thought, you know, it'd be nice to surprise them with some breakfast. And so uh, one of our favorite bakeries there is called Payard, and it's down the hill from where we were staying. And so I got all dressed up and got ready, and I went out on my way. And walking down the hill, I, you know, didn't really, I've noticed how steep it was, didn't think about the fact that I have to climb back up it, but it was steep. And all I could be thinking about was those uh, croissant sandwiches and pastries that I'd be eating in a few minutes. So I got into the lineup at the store, waited for a long, through a whole long lineup of people, um, ordered my stuff and got it. And they gave me two bags, white bags like this, stuffed to the, to the brim, just with enough, you know, paper left over to hold it over like that and to walk with it. So I had two bags like that. From Payard, I walked to the coffee place and got coffee or free teas for everybody. And there's six of us in our family. So you get one of those trays. It's got one, two, three, four. They put one in the middle, which makes everything else messy, if you know what I'm talking about. And then there was my sixth one over here. So I had the coffee tray here with five drinks with one over here, which I held between my thumb and my index finger. And then the two bags of stuff with pastries I had in the, this hand right here. And then I started off from there on my way back up the hill. This is winter. It was wet. There were ice patches here and there all around the place. But the first thing that happened that really ticked me off, T-I-C-K-E-D, uh, was that um, <laughs> uh, the coffee spilled on my sweater. I had a new sweater that I was wearing and coffee spilled all over it. And so as I was trying to juggle it all, that bothered me. And that was starting to get me in a bad mood. As I keep walking, my hand is getting t more tired and it's starting to ache as I'm walking up, you know. I'm sweating because it's you know, all the stuff in my hands and I'm walking uphill, um, you know. And I'm looking for a flat surface anywhere to put the stuff down on for one second. You think I could find a park bench or a, you know, picnic table. There was nothing around. So I kept going and I kept trudging along and getting more and more angry as, as every, with every step. And uh, eventually I got home. Got back to the place, had to walk up a steep step of stairs, you know, snow on every side. And I had to open the door and get my way in on more stairs. Then I had to go in, I had to get the key card out, open the door. So by the time I actually got into our place, I just threw the stuff on the ground. I was ticked and I was tired and I didn't want, I was like so angry. I didn't want to do this. And I was thinking in my head, what have I done to deserve this? This isn't fair. All I want to do is something nice for my family. And this is what, this is what I have to deal with. So I'm throwing off my shoes and... My family can tell you what the rest of that looked like. <laughs> Anyways, but we have this cosmic sense of justice um, built in almost. It's like karma. We think of it like that. What goes around comes around. Uh, we think we get what we deserve. You know, evil gets evil, good gets good. But as we all know, that doesn't always happen. Life isn't always fair. And maybe in your life, you've experienced this with more serious situations and issues. More serious than, than my situation I've just described. Maybe you've had issues in your career. You've worked hard, you've done everything you're supposed to do, still you don't get recognized, still you don't get promoted. Maybe you've had issues with your health. 
You do everything that right, you eat right, you, you know, exercise and everything, but you still got sick or somebody you loved did. Maybe it's with your finances. It doesn't matter how much you try to, you know, put stuff away. These emergencies keep coming up and you never seem to get ahead. Maybe it's with your kids. You've brought your kids to church, you know, every Sunday to youth group and to Sunday school and all the other things, yet your kids aren't following Christ in the way you want to see them doing it. But you might be tempted to think that you deserve more than what you've got. And you might, be, you might ask that question, what have I done to deserve this? But today I want, to, I want to mention that you can ask that, that question in two ways. I want to highlight that. You can ask it as a complaint, right? But there's another way. With complaint is the way I've asked it. But there's another way, another perspective that I want to challenge you with. And that's to ask this question with thanksgiving. Being overwhelmed with what God's done in our life. What have I done to deserve this? Right? The second one comes from a grateful heart. The first one comes from entitlement. And I heard it said recently that entitlement slays gratitude. That the two things cannot exist in, the, in a person's heart at the same time. I think that's right. You can't be both grateful and entitled at the same time. You have to be one or the other. And so this weekend we're celebrating Thanksgiving. We know that we have many things to be thankful for. And Todd's challenges and points to make a list of things we're thankful for. I think that's great. We need to do that. And at the top of that list, that's common for everybody here, is that we receive this precious gift of salvation, forgiveness for our sins through, Christ, for, through God's grace. And we don't ever want to take that thing for granted. So this morning, as we look at a parable from Luke 18, I hope that you'll be reminded of the importance of being grateful. So read with me, Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. This is Jesus telling a parable. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you I'm not like those other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus' teaching in this parable is very, a very fundamental part of our, our faith. It's a very basic part of our faith. It's like theology 101. Having said that, it's important that we understand why the one man was justified and the other wasn't. It's important that we're clear on that. Because Jesus clearly presents two different attitudes and he makes clear which one is the better one, which one is the one that will be justified. Justification, just to be be clear on it, is a theological term that means that someone has been declared righteous. Their sin has been removed, blotted out. This is a free gift that brings reconciliation with God. So as we compare and contrast these two men, I trust that we will find what's at the heart of justification and trust that we'll be hit with a deep sense of thanksgiving as we do. So my first point is this. As grateful Christians, justified by grace, we understand what we deserve as a result of our sinfulness. In verse 9, we can see that Jesus is speaking to a certain group of men. They're described as some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. 
Jesus is intentional in his, in his story because of this group. He's teaching to a group of self-righteous people. And the truth be told, most of us in here have moments when we would fit that description. Am I right? Yeah. Okay, some people are honest. Uh, I think we all have something to learn here today, though. So right away, we can see that he presents two, two vastly different characters. Uh, they would have been understood uh, very differently in their culture as well. The Pharisee was an esteemed holy man. As uh, people reading the Bible this far, you know, this far and, you know, much, much later, um, we sometimes can miss that because we see how Jesus goes after the, the Pharisees. But they were the experts in the law. They were dedicated to following the law. And they were seen as spiritual leaders, dedicated, uh, mature believers. The issue is that they were so religious that they lost sight of the heart of the gospel. They lost sight of greater issues of justice and mercy. They, were, they wore their religion on the outside for everybody to see. Tax collectors, on the other hand, were seen as detestable in their culture. They were wealthy men. They were considered untrustworthy because they had made their money by working for the Romans. They had betrayed their people and turned their backs on God. So by using these two men, Jesus is making a point. He's flipping the script on the culture, on his audience there. He's saying it's not about what you look like on the outside. It's all about your heart condition. Let's take a closer look at this situation. First thing I want to look at is the positioning and the posture of these two men as they come to the temple. The tax collector we see, he stands far off. His eyes are cast down. He beats his, his chest repeatedly. These are all signs of shame and guilt and unworthiness. He appears distraught with grief and anguish. He's a man who knows that he's a sinner. He knows what he deserves. The Pharisee, on the other hand, stands close to the temple. You take that by, by way of comparison with the tax collector. He acted as one who belonged there, who expected to be there. He stood alone. There was a separateness about him. And he was different, elevated in a way from the rest of the crowd. But he, well, he was meant to be heard. You might say he was proud of who he was. He was confident in his position. He knew that he belonged there. And so there's a lot we can tell just by that, what, what their attitudes were just by their positioning and their posture. Right? So now let's take a look at, their, at the actual content of their prayers. In verse 11 and 12, we see the, the, the Pharisee's prayer. God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all I get. I don't know if you, as you read that, the first thing that jumps out is that there's this compa comparative nature of, of uh, what he's saying here. His standard is other men. Thank God I'm not like others. I'm like this tax collector over here. Uh, when I was 10 years old, I had this deep-seated fear of the end times. And uh, sometimes at night, I would wake up and think I was going you know, be scared that I was going to be left behind. And uh, oftentimes, my brother slept in a bunk. I would kind of you know, whisper down to him or shake his leg just to see if he would stir. Then I'd go back to sleep. But after a while, it kind of dawned on me just how bad my brother was. He deserved hell a whole lot more than I did, Right? <laughs> So I thought, that guy is not the right standard for me. I had to go down the hall and see what my parents were doing. And if they were there, then I knew I was good. <laughs> and the Pharisee, he should have been comparing himself to God, not to other men. He should have been using the standard of God's holiness. Another thing about his prayer is this. Who is he actually praying to? Like he acts like he's praying to God. He, says that's, he addresses it first, God. 
And, but then he even feigns thanksgiving. Thank you that I'm not like these guys. But really, he's speaking to himself and to anybody who's within earshot. He's giving a dramatic monologue. And he mentions, he mentions God at the beginning, but that's it. He then just proudly lists off his acts of righteousness. Most egregious, though, is that he never confessed any sin of his own. This is purely self-congratulatory. He's patting himself on the back. To give you an example of this pride, I want you to listen to this statement taken from a rabbinic commentary on Genesis. This is written a long time ago, 300 to 500 BC, uh, by a man named Rabbi Simeon. And he says this, There were only 30 righteous persons in the world. I and my son should make two of them. But if there were 20, I and my son would be of of the number. And if there were 10, I and my son would be of the number. And if there were five, I and my son would be of the five. And if there were but two, I and my son would be those two. And if there were but one, myself should be that one. Right? This guy's throwing his son under the bus. You can, you can, <laughs> you can see the mindset. This, like, this, this, they're proud of their holiness. And they, they took it very seriously. right? But they want to celebrate their righteousness above all. That's what comes across. That's the issue that Jesus had with the Pharisees. You know, they thought they were righteous because they followed the law and they loved to display it for others to see and tell others just how much better they were. That's why Jesus called them whitewashed tombs because they were, you know, shining, sparkling on the outside. But on the inside, there was death and decay. There was no life there. The Pharisee was wrong because he trusted in his own actions. He thought that made him deserving of God's favor. And I think it's easy for us to fall into this trap as well. Um, we tend to be more subtle about it. We don't sign somebody out here on a Sunday morning in the lobby touting off all their great deeds for the week, right? for everybody here. But instead, we might, it might be in the form of an Instagram post. You know, where you, you just kind of take a picture of yourself at a prayer meeting or serving soup at the soup kitchen. And maybe it's an off-hand comment you make about how great your quiet time is going. Maybe it's somebody telling somebody about how you helped another guy out financially. Maybe it's just in your own thoughts as well, how you, know, you think about others, that you look down on others. You, think you're, you honestly think you're, you're better, you're more righteous. This kind of thinking uh, can be dangerous for us, right? Sometimes in our good behavior, we can think we had part to do in our justification. Thinking, I'm a good person because I do X, Y, and Z. That's exactly what these Pharisees are doing. But this is horribly wrong thinking. This is heretical thinking. And let's be clear, our salvation is based on the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. Amen? All right. Pharisee gets it wrong. The tax collector gets it right. He offers a short and concise prayer, seven words. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He simply asks for forgiveness. It's honest, it's humble. He confesses his sin. He's desperate and ashamed. And we can see that from the way he behaved, his actions. But in this situation, he knows that he needs a savior. He doesn't focus on anybody else. It's just him and God. God is the standard, and he knows that he doesn't measure up. So he begs for mercy. The tax collector came in with the right heart attitude, humility. The Pharisee, on the other hand, was super proud. I like how Paul addressed the Corinthians when they were starting to think too highly of themselves. He reminds them of where they came from in 1 Corinthians 1. Not many of you are wise by human standards. Not many influential. Not many were of noble birth. 
God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. You know, therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. God wants us to take on that heart of humility and to remember where we came from. It's important that we don't lose sight of this. As I think about this parable today, I'm reminded of two verses that many of you would have memorized as a kid. Romans 3.23 and Romans 6.23. Actually, Romans 3.23 and 24. But uh, I only memorized 23. <laughs> For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, comma, this is 24, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus, Christ Jesus. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, comma, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I want to focus on, for a second on the comma in both of those, those, uh, those verses or those statements. I don't know about Greek punctuation, but I know that in English, that comma means something important. That means we got to pause there and think about what we just read as we get ready to hear the second part of the sentence. It's important that we pause here. And we need to slow down and consider it before moving on. So in Romans 3.23, we, we learn about our state. You know, we are sinners. We fall short of the glory of God. In Romans 6.23, we know that the penalty for our sin is death. Right? We, we cannot understand the second half of those statements if we don't first grasp the, the, the for initial part. Grace only makes sense if we can, and we can only really appreciate it if we first understand our sinfulness and the punishment that we deserve for that sinfulness. Both of these halves are key for us understanding the gospel. If you take one away, you lose the meaning. You lose the power of it. So I think we need to regularly pause in our lives to remember who we were before Christ saved us. And we know this. We were dead in our trespasses. We were sinners. We brought nothing, nothing to this, this relationship. And the tax collector is justified because he knows this. He knows that he can't save himself, and he looks to God for his salvation. And we need to do this well. We need to do this as well. We need to cling to our Savior. And hope as we read this, we're talking about reflecting on our sinfulness, that nobody would, would hear that honest recognition of sin in any way gives us license to sin more. If you read through Romans 6, you'll know that's certainly not the case. Paul discusses it at length. But he, he tells us this at the end, that we are united with Christ in his death and his resurrection. We partake in both things. We die to our sins. We rise in his life, right? We should continue to strive towards righteousness, continue to strive to be holy. That's what he wants for us. The Pharisees' mistake was not that they were devoted to the law. That's a good thing. Their mistake was that they trusted in their devotion to the law. They trusted in their works. They trusted in their self-reliance. They were self-reliant, sorry. So the correct response as we pursue holiness in light of God's grace is to live into it, to live into our new identity, to live into our new self, to who he says we are. It starts with humility. Honest humility, knowing who we are before God, is transformative. And it leads us to a place of gratitude. And gratitude will slay our proud entitlement. Amen? All right, so the second thing I want to underline from this passage is this. As grateful Christians justified by grace, we rightfully trust in the mercy power, and holiness of God. As we read this text, I can't help but wonder why the tax collector would even choose to go to the temple in the first place. Right? Why not run away? If he's so distraught by his sin, why would he think to go to the holiest place? And why would he try to get as far away from God as he could? 
Of course, once again, Jesus is making a point in this story through this character. The tax collector believes something essential about God. And we see this in his actions and in his prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the key. He trusted that God was going to be merciful. Mercy is defined as the act of withholding deserved punishment. We know that he did not only get mercy, but he also got grace, unmerited favor. And he went home justified at the end of the story. For all the Pharisees learning, the tax collector knows God's character better because he knows this about God. He knows that God is merciful. And his his desperation allows him to see things in a way that a self-righteous person never can. That's true for us too, right? It's in our desperation that we fully grasp and appreciate what God's done for us. And talk, about, talk to people about their testimonies. It's always, there's always an element of desperation. That's what I came to Christ from. It's at that moment when you understood what you needed. Right? This isn't unlike the, the prodigal son. who returned to his father and hoped that he might be shown mercy, that he might be able to become a servant in the house. But the father runs out to him. He opens him, his arms up to him. He receives him back. He celebrates him and he reinstates him into the family. Adam Ramsey says this about mercy. Mercy is not a feeling that God drifts into when he's in a generous mood. It's the ever-flowing fount of the deepest part of his heart. That's a beautiful statement. That's who God is. God is merciful. That's part of his character. That's ever-flowing out of him. But if God is merciful, then what else must be true of him? God's mercy insinuates that he is willing to save, that he's a good God, that he's a loving God. And here's just a few scriptures I wanted to show you that, that highlight this. Romans 5, 8 says, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. We have an inheritance with God. He's given us that. He's calling us his children. From sinner to child. Fantastic. Mark 7, 11 says this. God the Father gives good things to those who ask. God cares for us and he'll give us the things we need and the things we ask for. Scripture's clear, eh? Old Testament, New Testament. God, his character is the same. He's good and he's loving. He's patient and generous. And he is willing to save us. But God's mercy doesn't just insinuate that he he wants to save. He's willing to save. It also insinuates that he's able to save. Colossians uh, 1, 16 and 17. For by him, all things were created. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. These verses about Christ clearly tell us that he is sovereign and that he's all powerful. He does not answer to anyone. He is the final word on all things. He's in control. And this is the basis of the tax collector's faith. When he goes to the temple, he's going to the person who's in charge of all this. The person who fully, really understands uh, truth really understands right and wrong. So God is willing and he is able to save us. He's loving. He's a loving and sovereign God who wants to do this for us. But I would add that for, in order for him to be merciful, he must also be perfect and holy. E.W. Tozer wrote this, holy is the way God is. He does not conform to a standard. He is that standard. As a result of his perfection, he has an utter intolerance for things that are unholy. He hates it. He will judge it. Romans 1.18 says, 
that God's wrath will come against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. We can bet on that. His holiness provides a standard for judging right and wrong. It is also the standard by which he, he gives mercy. He is slow to anger. He is patient, and he wants to be reconciled with us. Obviously, there's a lot more that can be said about the character of God. People write whole books on this. One book I would suggest, Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer. Fantastic book. If you want to talk about the character of God, that's one to go to. Um, but there's a lot we can say. What I want you to take away from this, though, is that whether the tax collector knew this or not, whether he could articulate it or not, he demonstrates an understanding of God and a deep reverence for him. He knew that where he stood with God, he knew that he was totally dependent on him. The Pharisee, by comparison, demonstrates, does, does he really demonstrate a reverence for God? I don't think so. Who is God to him? Does he even need God? He has a formulaic transactional relationship with God, if he has one at all. <laughs> there's no dependence. There's no repentance. The Pharisee gets it wrong. He has a limited understanding of God's character. And he tells us, and this tells us that even though we may act rightly, we may act, live piously, we can still miss the boat. We can still miss the point. We may not have a true relationship with God, and we can fall short. We need to be mindful that we serve a God who is sovereign. He's in control of all things. He's perfect. He's good. He's loving. He's just, and he's merciful. The more we understand his character, the more that we will be inclined to run to him, especially when we're in sin, especially when we're, we don't feel like we, we, we deserve it. That's when we need to run to him. And when we do that, we can experience true joy that he desires for us to live in. Right? So when things are going bad, when things are going great in your life, you can still go to him. And you can still say with Job, blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen? So where does this leave us? Point three, as grateful Christians justified by grace, we are freed from the bondage of sin to truly live for Christ. What is the impact of all of this on us? Jesus concludes the parable with the summative statement in verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. As we've already seen, humility is transformative. Knowing who you are in your heart is key. We can only understand the gospel if we're confronted with our own sinfulness first, our own dependence on God. And if we do, then we can have peace of mind. We can have assurance. We can live in freedom, knowing that salvation is a gift from God. It can't be earned. We can't do any more to get it. We already have it. We can rest on that. At the end of the story, we see the Pharisee really got nothing from, from the experience. He went to the temple, stood there, made his little prayer. Then he went home the same way. However, the tax collector goes home a drastically different guy. He's a changed man. He left that day with peace of mind. The storm in his heart had been, been calmed. He left with a grateful heart, and he was justified. I think the challenge for him going home, as the challenge is for us, is how do we continue living in that humility day by day after the fact? Reminding ourselves of our position before God is essential for that. We need to do that daily. And that, and that will find freedom. Freedom to live and freedom to serve others. I can't help think about Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, 
for I am gentle and lowly. We don't have to struggle anymore. We can rest in him. So how do we respond to that? I think there's a few things that we can do. We need to live in reality first. Paul Tripp has this, uh, I, think, I think it's a helpful mirror analogy. He says that scripture is the perfect mirror. As we look into it, we have a perfect reflection of who we are. And then he compares that to things in the world that distort. Things like, car- that distort like carnival mirrors. You know what carnival mirrors are? They stretch you up, they stretch you in short, they stretch you here, they stretch you in. They basically give you anything. They show, show you as anything but what you really are. And those are the voices that are in the world doing the same thing. As Jesus tells this parable, he's presenting us with a clear picture of who we are. We are desperate sinners. If we really want to live for Christ, we need to put ourselves in front of God's word daily and to be reminded of this so that we can fend off those voices. Because there's a lot of voices. Some telling you you're great. Some telling you you stink. We're coming in all directions from all sorts of places. We need to anchor ourselves in God's word daily so that we can, we can know what the truth is. And then we can be reminded of our reality. We're reminded of our hope as well, that it's in Christ. So and the second point is this, understanding our identity. It flows from the first. Unlike the world, the Christian identity is not defined by who we are in and of ourselves. You know, you've heard the song, The Greatest Love of All by Whitney Houston. It says she found the greatest love of all inside of her. Sorry, but she got that thing so wrong. <laughs> Does anybody know that song? Does anybody like singing it? Yeah, there's a few who do. Yeah, it's got a catchy tune, I guess. Anyways, um, horrible theology, though. Um, but God's love is what matters here. Uh, it's not about finding it in ourselves. We are defined by who he says we are, you know, by what he has done. This is not self-esteem. This is not self-acceptance. It's not about being an extraordinarily wonderful person because you aren't a wonderful person. Nobody is. John Piper says this about our identity in Christ. God has given us our identity in order that his identity might be proclaimed through us. God made us who we are so we could make known who he is. Our identity is for the sake of making known his identity. The meaning of our identity is the excellency of God, that the excellency of God be seen in us. It's all about him. Amen? This is wonderful news for all of us, for anyone who struggles with value and worth, which is all of us. All of us struggle with this at some point. And as a Christian, we trust this, that God forgives our sins, that he frees us to live on mission for him. And he's given us a mission. Know that he has entrusted you to do his work and that the Holy Spirit lives in you and will work through you to accomplish what he wants you to accomplish. That's where we find our value in him, in what he wants us to do. He's valuable, and that's all that matters when it comes to this. So let's first live in our reality, and let's understand our identity in Christ. The third thing I think we can do is care for those around us. C.S. Lewis says this, true humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Humility ultimately shifts our focus from ourselves onto others. 1 John 4, 7 says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Love originates in God. He is love. He works through us, right? We receive his love, we pass it on. That's how it works. And we are freed to serve others, to be generous to others, and to be gracious to others in the same way that we have been served. He's been generous with us, that he's been gracious to us. 
We, we are free to show mercy to others like Jesus did. Think about the woman caught in adultery. John 8, and the crowd comes down and uh, he says, let him who is, out, who is without sin be the first to cast a stone. And so when they deserve, they, you know, deserve, disperse and there's no one left to condemn her, he says this, neither do I condemn you. And from now on, sin no more. I think that's a beautiful picture of how we live in community and we restore each other. Right? Jesus restored her dignity without ignoring her sin. He is authentic and he is kind. Like the old song, they will know we are Christians by our love. This controversial line, I don't know why. We will guard each man's dignity and save each man's pride. That's what we want to do for each other. We want to show mercy to each other that way. We want to build each other up and encourage each other day by day. I think as, we're, as we come to this, we're free to truly function as the body of Christ, to celebrate each other's gifts, to acknowledge those things, to recognize that you're on mission with each other. You know, we don't think of comparing ourselves like the Pharisee. That was the problem. He came to the temple and was comparing himself, looking down at other people who he thought were less spiritual than he was. We want to cut that out of our lives completely and out of our church completely. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, you know, that all the parts of the body are needed. But God brings honor to all parts, even the less honorable members. We thank God for his mercy. We thank God that he takes us where we are and that he uses us. That he allows us to shed the old self and he frees us to live in the new way. The way that he's leading us in. So today I want to conclude by telling you a story from the Reader's Digest. Uh, It was from November 1956. The title is The Thanksgiving I Don't Forget. It's a Canadian Thanksgiving story, so we got our Canadian content in here. Um, recounted by a man named H. Gordon Green. And he grew up on a farm, uh, early part of the 1900s, I'm assuming, because there wasn't electricity at the time. But every Thanksgiving, the father and the kids would take the kids out on the farm, and they would take inventory of everything they had. You know, they had fruits and vegetables, their preserves, their bushes of grain, all their animals, livestock, everything like that. The reason he did that was that he wanted to instill in them the sense that God had provided. Number one, their work, that they had worked hard and this is what was left, but also that God had provided for them. He wanted them to truly appreciate their Thanksgiving feast that night. However, that's not, uh, those are the ones that were Green's favorite Thanksgiving. The one that he, he won't forget came in a year where they didn't have anything to be thankful for. The year it started well, you know, they were making good money and they were putting money aside um, but it didn't stay that way. It was also the year that the, elect- the electricity came to the town. And uh, eventually they, they broke down and they got an electric laundry machine. They got lights throughout the house. Uh, so no more cleaning chimneys, no more filling up lamps with oil, no more, you know, clipping wicks, anything like that. It was an easier life for sure. You know, laundry was easier. Everything was easier. And he said this, that that electricity coming to town was the last good thing that happened that year. That spring, after the crops had been planted, there, was a, there were huge rainfalls in the area that killed most of their crops and causing them to into financial you know, hardship. They had to sell off some of their livestock just to make ends meet, and they were struggling. So when Thanksgiving came around that fall, they didn't feel much like having a, uh, a feast or celebrating it. Green's father, though, had other ideas. He insisted on having a meal together. So instead of turkey, he, he brought in a rabbit that he'd killed and gave it to the mother to cook. 
TV grudgingly set to work doing that and preparing it with some turnips. That's the, you know, the vegetable they had to survive the rains. But when it came time for the kids to eat, they refused. <laughs> I would too. <laughs> and that's when the father did something unexpected. He went and grabbed some old lamps out of the attic and got them lit. And once they were there on the table and lit, he told the kids to turn off the lights. As he sat back down, as they sat back down to eat, they couldn't believe how dark it was in the room. They couldn't believe that they had ever lived like that without electricity. And then Green wrote this. In the humble dimness of that old lamp, we were beginning to see clearly again. It was a lovely meal. The jackrabbit tasted like turkey and the turnips were the mildest we could recall. Our home for all its want was so rich to us. So I ask you today, no matter what your situation is, what's your posture going to be? What's your attitude going to be? No matter what difficulties you might be facing, we have a choice to make. You can either become frustrated and angry, thinking you deserve better, or you can remind yourselves of the days before you had the light of Christ in your life. Remember that no matter what you might be lacking, when you consider all that Christ has done for you and the amazing grace that he's shown to you, you might just end up asking this question with thanksgiving and joy. What have I done to deserve this? By the way, the answer is nothing, if you weren't just paying attention. <laughs> Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that we do not get what we deserve in this life. We thank you that you've made a way, Lord, that you have been merciful and loving to us, God. That you are a merciful and loving God. And yet you've made a way for us to be reconciled. Lord, we are mindful of our own sinfulness this morning. We are overwhelmed with gratitude, Lord, for all that you've done. Lord, I don't want to be callous about the, the very serious and real pain that people struggle with today, Lord, but I just pray in those situations that you would give, give us perspective to deal with them, Lord. May we continue to grow in our knowledge of you, in our, in our relationship with you, Lord, in our faith of you, trusting that you are sovereign in all things and yet you are with us in it. But as we trust in you, may we continue to serve each other, to encourage each other, to live together in grace, bringing glory to your name. Amen. <laughs>